and welcome to a very special episode of Soundtrack where we're doing one of my favorite things, seeing how much money I can spend on film scores by talking the 2019 Oscar nominees for Best Original Score. Uh, my name's Alexander Bohannon and I'm your host as always and I am never alone. Sir, can you introduce yourself? Hi, my name's uh, Caleb Masters, live from the red carpet of the soundtrack. And Alexandra, yes. that is a stunning dress you're wearing right there. What, who's your designer? Can oh, you elaborate? Yes. Um, my designer is uh, Jonathan Colton's 2012 concert t-shirt line. Um, oh my God, fabulous, <laughs> fabulous. So uh, it seems like you're trying to make some sort of statement with this outfit. Yeah, yeah. Our, uh, the status of the American dream and uh, artificial hearts and <laughs> Oh boy, it's been a down yeah. year. <laughs> Hi everybody, I'm Caleb Masters, the uh, editor-in-chief uh, and voice of the Cinematic Schematic podcast. Alex, I've been looking forward to this show for like uh, six months. Oh shit. Really, since we did it last year, because I thought it was a lot of fun. It's a good show, and I actually have had uh, many people, uh, real-ass human beings that are listening to our disembodied voices right now, tell me that they really enjoyed last year's Oscars program. Well... I'm very glad that you thought so. I appreciate your feedback, and we're doing it again. <laughs> Back by popular demand, we created an entire category of podcasts yeah. uh, dedicated to popular film score oh podcasts. Oh my god, no. We're not even going to go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> well, Caleb, while I was doing research for last year's show, um, I looked at my old notes when we were talking about the nominees for last year, and I have to say, after kind of reviewing my notes... Last year's scoring uh, noms as compared to this year, I think the Academy is like shifting in a, in a way that I really like. I think the nominees for both years are A++. Absolutely. But I do feel like this year, it just, this year just feels like each selection that we're about to hear from tonight, all of them feel like they are distinct and like 
irreplaceable. Like they're at the heart of the film that they're oh, associated yes. with. And, and in past years, I really couldn't say that maybe except for the one that ended up winning. And that's why I'm really thrilled. Um, and also that we're not just getting a lot of, you know, repeat names either. I mean, of course we have Alexandra Desplat, who I had to look up that French pronunciation. Finally. I love him. He's back yeah. every yeah, year. Yeah, He's back every he's year. Like John Williams now. Absolutely. And the fact that he's his presence, he's really the only kind of like big, big, big cheese that like in that kind of Zimmer Williams kind of demographic. I think he's nice. I, I would put him in that, uh, yeah, that echelon exactly. of film composers. Yeah. I mean, but considering last year we had Zimmer Williams and Desplat. Oh, wow. And Carter oh. Burwell. And then I, what was the last one? That's okay. Someone will tell me, I'm sure. <laughs> Internet, tweet at us. Yeah, yeah. So I think that this year um, is a really powerful year for Oscars, even if you disagree with Best Picture, but I'm talking about Best Original Score. Like we heard at the top of the show, we had uh, Ludwig Jorensen's, uh track Wakanda from the Marvel Breakout runaway train hit black panther wakanda forever wakanda forever motherfuckers like this is an amazing track and i and it's like it epitomizes just kind of everything i really like about the black panther score while there are like kind of more traditionally orchestral instruments you got your screen strings and you got your brass um the score itself is rooted in the authentic sounds and instruments of the african continent um and Jorensen. He uh, actually had some uh, consult like consultants um, that were of like Aboriginal people that like helped kind of assemble his sound and he worked with him. And something a really interesting quote I got from Jorensen, he said that um, he learned how music from Africa is a language. And in Africa, music is really used for storytelling. So each instrument and different musical rhythm is given a clear and distinct meaning. Because Wakanda is actually in the continent of Africa, uh, fictionally, he wanted to make it rooted in something like that had that sound. Especially, he said that some of the rhythms he used in the score have been traditional tribal rhythms for thousands of years that were actually used in situations telling stories of like battles and stuff. And so he was using rhythms associated with famous uh, stories or folklore of these different countries and then used them to convey those scenes within Black Panther. And I think that's awesome wow that is fantastic that's like the isn't that like the the best aspect of film composing music that tells a story yeah and and i think i mean you absolutely can't have black panther without the the score the 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 music cue there that 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 trims and every it's like the 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 i mean this is the king of wakanda right like this is uh this is the technological marvel uh the city and home of black panther the king of wakanda in a high tech city, it just all that comes through with the drums. I mean, that drum beats. I'm just like, Ugh. yeah, yeah. And those are a traditional instrument. Those are called talking drums. And uh, T'Challa's like motif is mostly composed of the talking drum. And something that uh, Jorensen also is on records uh, discussing is that what he has observed in his scoring, Western kind of scoring, is that it's really led by your strings and your brass, it, and the drums fill 
flip-flop it for the kind of scoring he did for Black Panther where the drums are taking the lead and the backfill is actually done um, by, you know, that kind of more traditional orchestral instruments, which I found that, like, that, again, we're fitting... These exemplary scores are perfect at fitting the theme and tone and actual, like, conveying story with the score. You're not even realizing you're getting an extra oomph of story whenever you're watching these films. And I just find that exemplary and fantastic i actually think you know black panther there's a lot of things to be said about that film it's uh no doubt an incredible achievement and it's nice to to hear a a film score that really does reach that same uh level and especially this is actually something we've talked about a great deal on uh soundtrack is just that generally speaking the marvel cinematic universe scores are not really super memorable yeah but this film uh this film score black panther is easily top three if like not number one in the marvel cinematic universe film scores and i think that's because marvel allowed uh, ryan coogler as the director to appoint people who weren't in their normal kind of stable of uh, filmmakers who work on these projects and these roles and really gave ryan coogler the ability to just bring in lots of different talent uh, a lot of fresh ideas more more people of color working yeah. on film. I, I think all around, though, what we saw is something really spectacular and special that is uh, pushing the Marvel machine in a really positive direction. I hope we see more of it. Yeah, and I I hope so, too. It's especially interesting now that, you know, whenever if you want to go back to our Blockbusters episode of Soundtrack to give this a listen, where we talk about how the Marvel Cinematic Universe has issues in being able to cite other compositions within their those original new ones and it's really cool to me that from now on we're like we saw in Avengers Affinity War um whenever we spent a lot of time in Wakanda um and I'm sure for Endgame as well when we will visit Wakanda um we're gonna have like these motifs represented there's no more Wakanda Alex Black Panther's dead oh I'm sorry you didn't see that when he yeah. turned to smoke? There's oh, no way. I mean, yeah, he's, he's he's gone. It's 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 over. Uh, it is literally in game. It's, it's just it's done. Oh man, yeah. I don't know how they're gonna make Black Panther two. They've got it on the slate, but there's <laughs> no way they can make it if Black Panther's dead. Well, they might do an Enter the Spider Verse thing where they have like a crossover Black Panther from another dimension's Wakanda multiverse. Multiverse Wakanda. That would be very interesting. Multiple Wakandas. Okay, sorry. Okay, Off no, you're okay. Let's uh, not divulge into our personal fan fictions and. Let us uh, check out how another composer uses uh, traditional drums of other cultures.
Well, Caleb, that was Wes Anderson's uh, flick from this year, Isle of Dogs, of course, uh, scored by Alexandra Dupla. Dupla. Sorry. Dupla. Dupla. You don't say the the S and or the T. So and that's like a lot of the letters. <laughs> I, just, I I don't speak French. Um so that's that's never going to be my strong suit. Um so that was the track 6 months later in Dogfight. Uh so Caleb, what do you what do you feel about Isle of Dogs and the score for this film? Uh complicated feelings because I I love the movie. It's stop motion. It's an homage to Japanese culture. Features uh you know, directed by Wes Anderson. Featuring a fantastic score from Alexandra Dupla. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I love it. But, uh, you know, I, I don't want to get too in the weeds. I'm also white. So, <laughs> like, yeah, that's like, that's eh. the thing. Yeah. Yep. So, of course, I'm like, I'm the, tar- I guess on the target demo, I guess, as a white guy who grew up loving Japanese culture and really loving Japan. Love, love samurais. Yeah. And anime. Anime and, yeah. and uh, music, Japanese theme music. Like, I, I love all of it. But, uh, you know, I know there was a lot of controversy. Well, I, a lot's probably a strong word. There was certainly some controversy uh, from a lot of uh, uh, you know uh, Asian descended film critics uh, a lot of whose uh, opinions I highly highly regard and respect and when they say hey this is a problem I say well it probably is one (laughs) it it probably is so now I'm kind of I, I haven't totally decided yet but i'm kind of putting i love dogs in the problematic faves category i i agree sort of i haven't landed on that 100 percent, but i do think that there is some uh, some problematic nature but i will also say bias i saw this at south by southwest last year and it was a pretty incredible experience so they were handing out like headbands and stuff and you uh, had jeff goldblum roasting somebody on stage oh and- yeah okay yeah no it was jeff goldblum was being jeff goldblum some guy accidentally oh, made roasted- a joke about yeah. jeff goldblum and then and then bill murray roasted that guy ah Bill Murray was in full I don't give a fuck mode tonight. He was like harassing people in the audience who asked dumb questions. Yeah, it was great. Uh, yeah. So Isle of Dogs has uh, definitely, I would put it in the problematic faves box for myself as well. Um, I would say, though, that the score um, is really good in terms of it actually complementing um, what's going on on screen. Now, is that what's going on on screen maybe rooted in stuff that's not necessarily great yes but it actually does a good job at achieving the technical achievement musical composition and all of that is masterful yeah no absolutely and uh you know i i think uh there's a lot of very yeah a lot of nuance and opinions out there on this film again i i land on the side of really liking it um i will say one thing i i love about it is the aesthetic but specifically with the score so i actually took three years of japanese in high school again very white guy perspective i took three years of japanese in high school in south bend uh, indiana uh uh no connorsville indiana connorsville. even more backwoods but um I'm surprised they had Japanese in Connorsville, It's really Indiana. freaking weird that they did, and I don't remember how or why, but we actually had, a, 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 our teacher was from Japan. Wow. Yeah, she was like a... That's probably, we had German at my high school, and that's probably, our teacher was German. So, needless to say, yes, I, I took Japanese in high school. But one thing I really, uh, one memory that stands out distinctly, uh, when learning about and studying Japanese music, we had the opportunity to go on a field trip, an after-school field trip, to, I think, Ball State University, I want to say, and we watched a... Uh, traditional Japanese drum concert. It mm. was like all these guys who come over from Japan and were touring the U.S., different universities and stuff, doing a full concert with just the drums. Yeah. And I really, when I, the whole time I was watching this movie, the way they incorporated drums into the film score, I thought, man, this is exactly, it's creating that same feeling, it's that same style, uh, and I just think they hit a home run with it, the, with yeah. the film score. Absolutely. Uh, the Of course, that's like the taiko drumming, um, 
Taiko, um, T-A-I-K-O, um, drumming. And of course it's mixed with Wes Anderson's own. I would say that Wes Anderson does a great job in all of his films where he comes through in the score, even though of course Desplat is scoring it, you know, and all that stuff. But it, it also like feels like Wes wrote it somehow, just like how he wrote and directed the movie. He's an auteur who has a very distinct vision for the sight and a very distinct ear for the sound. Exactly. All of his films, and even down to the songs that he incorporates into the soundtrack, not the score. Yeah, okay. Films. That's actually something I wanted to talk about because um, there are moments where um, you get um, songs from Seven Samurai and another Akirasawa film as well. Um, in just performed in the world of the film. It was an, it was a nice motif and it was a great homage to this really great director. And, and now that I'm thinking about it, it's very interesting because uh, Akira Kurosawa had like a lot of Western influence in his films. And that's why a lot of his contemporaries at the time in Japan kind of gave him a bit of the like, he wasn't necessarily like brought into the fold and accepted. No, no, he's yeah. uh, he's more widely uh, accepted by the Western, yeah, uh, by America. And so yeah. it's kind of like an interesting calling back to that. Whereas you have Wes Anderson, who's doing a lot these Japanese motifs, but this still feels like kind of like this westernized movie. Um, oh, oh, certainly, yeah. uh, it's certainly a very westernized movie. It really does uh, uh, see seem like a westerner's take on japan all the a love letter a westerner's love letter to the culture of japan i yeah. think i think that's a good a good way of uh phrasing phrasing that for sure another really interesting inclusion one that you don't necessarily get frequently is the use of recorder um recorders oh, yeah. Ne- yeah. Never. yeah when <laughs> when's the last time you played a recorder outside of elementary school never probably outside of elementary school do people play recorders Alex? um maybe i mean apparently a whole symphony <laughs> that were played for this <laughs> the score um but that's another really interesting kind of amalgam of western and eastern cultural influence because um the recorder was introduced to japan in the 16th century uh, via trade and you know christian missionaries and now the recorder is still you know taught in schools just like it's taught over here to teach fundamentals of music so it has like a place in japanese culture but it is definitely something that was introduced to them by the West. And that's kind of like, that's basically a lot of the whole tone of this movie is these, it's a cultural mismatch um, and how people and these different cultures are working in tandem uh, together because we do have like, you know, we have like the double bass and all the other more kind of traditional elements, but it still feels so uniquely Wes Anderson and so uniquely perfect for this film. And another thing I found very interesting uh, go on. is that unlike a lot of movies, this film actually, if you watch the entire credits, it, it lists all the orchestra members. Really? Yes. That's like, not, right. I, it's not a super common practice, right? Yeah. Down to the guy who did the whistles, like the literal whistles. <whistles> exactly. That's it. Did you get some whistle training from that guy? I, you know, it's ironically, I couldn't whistle until I was like... 18 interesting yeah anyway interesting <laughs> fun facts about caleb today but yeah so the idea that like all of these like individuals are actually given their credit and the score in, in the credits 
um, right before you get to the um, the additional music little bumper. So that, I thought that was really cool. Um, just wanted to say props to you, Wes Anderson, for for making that choice or whoever in your world made that choice. Uh, again, it's another one of those things where how often do pe- specific uh, members of an orchestra uh, for a film score get recognized? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's why you don't put Oscars during commercial breaks, and I'm just going to leave that one there. Um, <laughs> Boo! Boo! <laughs> And so uh, we're going to move on from uh, our Isle of Dogs to another story. Another story involving uh, young people on a, and on, on a different kind of adventure. So here's our next Oscar-nominated score. the overture for Mary Poppins Returns composed by Mark Scheiman with lyrics by Scott Whitman. Obviously, lyrics not in that piece, uh, but in the other li- sung pieces. Those lyrics were fantastic, Alex. I don't know <laughs> what you're talking about. Yeah, I have to say, I love musicals. I love a good old-fashioned, like, big big production, over-the-top musical. And I especially love overtures for musicals and operas. I mean, they're basically the teaser trailer or like the appetizer platter of the rest of the songs you're going to hear in the entire movie. So I thought that was like a great selection that highlights all the major musical motifs that we're going to hear throughout the rest of the film. Yeah, no, wholeheartedly agree. That's uh, I, you know, marching band kid here. We did loads of overtures and uh, I have a real soft spot for them too, because uh, it tells a little mini story. It's, it's kind of like uh, 
in the Mission Impossible franchise, uh, you know, not credited anywhere on this Oscars show for some reason, uh, that shows you the sneak peek of the rest of the movie that you're about to see before you actually start. I, I, I love it. Tells a story. Yeah, it does. It tells a story. Um, and so composer and songwriter uh, Mark uh, Scheiman and Scott Women, they began on working on the score and the songs in 2016. Something really interesting about the their work on this um, so the score includes motifs and callbacks to, of course, um, the original Mary Poppins uh, starring Julia Andrews that was written by the Sherman brothers. So now, one of the Sherman brothers who wrote the music is still alive. Whoa. Yeah, he's 90 years old. I know. <laughs> so Rich- Julia Andrews is still kicking, too. That's true. That's she's, true. She's too busy to voice voicing things in Aquaman to uh, appear in Mary Poppins Returns, though. I don't want to chase that rabbit too hard, but she was an Aquaman. She voices something in Aquaman. Okay, great. Great, great, great. Uh, so Richard Sherman actually served as a musical consultant for this film, um, and he actually worked with Mark Scheiman. And they work together, not probably too closely because poor, the guy is 90 years old, but basically they passed every song through Richard Sherman to say, hey, you know, is this kind of in keeping to the worlds that you set up and created? And yeah, he, he passed all the songs. Um, so he said that he loved what he was hearing and he loves the new film. Um, so isn't that amazing? I think that's really cool. That not that the best compliment you can possibly get from like for like a legacy composer like oh man i'm a big fan of your score and i just tried to create the same thing you did in the best way i knew how and then that person's like oh you did you done good you done good that's gonna be fulfilling right yeah and also mary poppins has a lot of iconic uh tunes too i mean a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down you know Uh, so for this film to come in and i think on a maybe slightly lesser level but still uh, create some very memorable tunes that people are going to to remember or be able to recall. I mean, just listening to that piece right now, I was already struck by several scenes in the movie every time there was a certain music cue. So again, yeah. great uh, work from uh, film composing. Yeah, and and that's kind of where I'm at on this particular um, selection. I think this is the closest we get this Academy Awards for like a traditional entry of Oscar fare because the Academy loves musicals so much. And uh, so Shyman also is kind of a powerhouse that is responsible for so many like beloved musicals that we see today. He wrote Hairspray. 2002's Hairspray that won Best Musical and then, of course, was made into the movie and then was made into the live-action TV thing, the live musical. I I don't understand those at all. I bet he named La La Land Best Picture, too, didn't he? I bet in his heart of hearts that was his Best Picture winner. (laughs) Um, And, of course, it would be remiss to discuss how Emily Blunt's performance of The Place Where Lost Things Go is also nominated for Best Original Song. And, yes, she will be performing it at the 91st Academy Awards. Oh, fantastic. I do have to... I don't want to bring you down. That's great excitement, Alex. But uh, as listeners can hear in our other part, the other part of our Oscar predictions or Oscar conversation this year on the Cinematic Schematic, uh, Adam Chitwood from Collider chimed in and let all, the entire panel know last night that they're only going to be like 90 seconds long for each performance. <clears throat> so, um... Yeah, it's not going to ever be like Robin Williams stomping down the same stage singing the entirety of Blame Canada. Like... <laughs> we didn't know what we had. We didn't know gone. what we had until it was gone. Yeah. 
Um, so we're actually going to uh, move away from this uh, film. Uh, we're going to grab our umbrella and get swept away in the wind. Um, and this film might give you some uh, tonal, tonal whiplash, but here we go. So that was Blut and Bowden, Blood and Soil. It's the main theme from Black Klansman, uh, composed by Terrence Blanchard. 
Alex, I love the score. It's good. I loved Black Klansman. It was one of my top rated films from last year. Just really impacted me in a deeply... uh, uh, It just really impacted me in a a much deeper way than I expected going into the film. And uh, I... I, it's really strange because while it was one of my top films last year, I was really surprised when it was getting all the Oscar buzz and then all the nominations rolled out. But hey, I am super excited that Spike Lee finally got an Oscar nomination. Absolutely. I'm super excited to get some diversity in the film composer category. Yes. Uh, and I think this is a very deserving score as well. I, I love how it kind of harkens to the idea. You get the feeling of justice. Because yes. I mean, your main character is a police officer. He's a, uh, a black police officer in Colorado Springs. There's a nice urban sound about it that I really appreciate that meshes in a really interesting way with the more kind of law and order style, military-esque or uh, police sounding stuff. You get the snare drums in there, kind of match with some really jazzy sounds. Uh, it, it's I feel like there's two or three different genres being thrown here into one, and it comes together in a really powerful way. And uh, when, I, when I hear that score, it really uh, makes me think back to uh, about three or four very specific sequences in the movie that were... For me, hugely impactful. So I think this score is an A+. I think it is another exemplary note of how it perfectly fits the tone and mood of this movie. Um, Terrence Blanchard's background is in jazz and funk composition. Um, He has also done a lot of... He's done a few other pieces for, I think, Spike uh, Spike Lee, among others. So this isn't his first rodeo. He's been, like, actually composing for film for, like, 30 years in addition to just being a professional musician. Yeah, absolutely. Isn't that... That's, like, really cool... And I'm finally, I'm so excited that someone who's had a career like that has finally had the chance to kind of... Finally getting some recognition. Exactly, exactly. Um, And so one really interesting thing about this score, not necessarily the track we heard, like the main uh, theme in particular. So I, I found this really, really interesting video on YouTube. It's a music theory professor talking about what like what to the actual um, like theory behind like the composition, what uh, Terrence Blanchard is doing in certain sequences. Um, And we'll put this in the show notes because I think you should definitely watch it. But basically he is discussing um, the chord structure of the KKK's like theme. Oh, and how it's known. I don't know if this is known like just across uh, across film circles or composition circles, but he called it uh, an evil triad, which is, it's just this, this seri- sequence of notes in a chord that makes it sound like really, really uh, maniacal and evil and devious. Um, and so, and what the evil triad has apparently come across in film is that it is frequently used for the bad guys motif. Um, I'm going to, I'll play this uh, snippet of one of the uh, KKK's theme parts. And so you'll hear that in action real quick. And then um, also the fact that this is used just kind of across lots of other composition circles.
so one thing that he pointed out, he's he's got he's at a piano and he's playing along with this video with the actual black uh, black clansman on uh, his laptop, and he's like, yeah, you might also hear an evil triad in the same key or a different key. It's also used in Star Wars. That's like the is Darth Vader's theme is composed out of the evil triad, and so you should definitely watch this video because it was. Very educational. This guy was awesome. Uh, so thank you, Dr. Scott Murphy, for instructing me uh, for free uh, on on YouTube because this is this is a video very much worth your time. Um, and I find finding little nuggets like that that like just enhance my knowledge that these composers are doing everything so intentionally. It's oh, not yeah. just like oh yeah, we're just gonna make something that sounds good. Like there's like a theory and a craft and like just even like theoretical underpinnings, like knowing what culture does in response to certain sounds. Yeah. It's just, it's great. And and that's stuff that like, Very that sharp, makes me a geek out of <laughs> somewhat subversive. Yeah. I love it. I feel like it actually matches Spike Lee. Yeah. His direction, this film, uh, Spike Lee actually edited a couple of, uh, I think one sequence in particular, to kind of be a riff on the way Birth of a Nation was edited as well. It's the mm. scene when you have both the uh, the clan watching Birth of a Nation intercut with uh, the the black student union college, and you have the uh, older gentleman who's talking to them about how it was when he grew up. Uh, it's very subversive, but and and so few people are actually going to recognize that. There's a lot of, some great pieces that I don't have to. I'll have to find one and link in the show notes. It's just about the way the, the film edit was edited actually subverted a lot of the choices made in Birth of a Nation, so, the original. Wow. So I mean, just little stuff like that. See, man. that's that's so cool, and I love little kind of inside baseball things like that. That just it enhances my appreciation for these artists that make lovingly prepare this craft that they do for us. And, and I am so thankful that directors and auteurs like uh, Spike Lee exist out there um, for us to like kind of experience um, stuff through his perspective. Absolutely. Uh, Spike Lee has been a guy who's been doing incredible work for decades. Uh, sure. He's had some ups and downs in his career as far as, like, uh, I, I think Black Klansman is a huge return to form yeah. for him. But, I um, mean, he's been doing really important, powerful work in film for for decades. And it's really nice to see this film at the forefront of the Oscars, him getting recognized as a filmmaker. And I think, I really do think that the film score here from Terrence Blanchard uh, is just a testament to to the, the great storytelling and great collaboration they have going on. Yeah. And, man, this Oscar so, show makes me so excited because I get to talk about um, one of my favorite new composers that I'm just already a huge diehard fangirl of this composer. And so we're going to hear um, from our next Oscar-nominated film score. We're going to hear a selection of his. So here we go.
So that was Eden, or Harlem, uh, the, num- the first track from If Beale Street Could Talk, composed by Nicholas Bretel. Caleb, real talk, uh, between this movie and Bretel's other movie this year, Vice, Vice also uh, being nominated for Best Picture, I think Bretel is one of my favorite composers, if not like the favorite of recent years. And I say that not without like some big stinking thoughts behind that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think uh, he's a very quickly becoming uh, a very distinct voice as a composer. Cause I agree. I love both of these film scores as well. And we also should mention that he did compose moonlight as well. Yeah. uh, Another collaboration with Barry Jenkins. Uh, I, I, his, his, his scores are so emotional. Even, uh, this movie is much different than Vice, but Vice has a different sort of like ambitious, fiery sound to it that yeah. I think is is present there. Versus this, this is a lot more sensual and a lot more intimate, and uh, again, perfectly fits the tone uh, and the romance of the film. Yeah, and also, if you want to just be mad, he's like thirty. <laughs> Don't say that. I know. It's okay. Don't say that. It's okay. I, I I am so happy. You know, if he's 30, that means I have many years to listen to him. His work. That's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Spin it into a positive. But we, yes. Uh, listen, we get our podcast <laughs> kicking over here. And uh, no, JK. Yeah. JK. Um, so I listened to Bretel's interview with Terry Gross a few weeks ago. Oh, I caught that one too. Yeah, fantastic. yeah. Isn't it? It was absolutely fantastic. And I feel like the title, um, when I pulled it up on the website later, perfectly encapsulated the kind of the tone that he goes for both in if Beale street can talk and vice, which is the title of the interview was called Beale street and vice composer. Isn't afraid to play the quote wrong notes unquote. And that's one thing that I really, really liked. And from uh, his interview, he talked about how the way he structured music, he would, do things with intention. So it's like that would be subversive, but then would also work for the pieces that he was composing for in the, in vice, um, whenever he composes the main piano motif that ends up being the orchestral piece at the very end. Um, the chords are not even not dissonant. They're just not correct. Um, and that the, allows you to know as a viewer, Oh, something's wrong. It's not even that this sounds like, you know, out of, out of sorts. It's like, like intentionally wrong, intentionally wrong. Yeah. Like someone hit a bad key, but they do it in a way that says, Oh no, they meant to do it that way. Um, in kind in this, in similarly, um, in Beale street, uh, he was on record saying that Beale street's composition, if I remember correctly, started, um, as a, it was written for, I think brass. Um, and then they switched, basically what was considered brass sheet music for strings. And that totally just changes. Like, even though it's the same, same notes or similar composition, um, that just changes the actual mood and tone when it actually is played. And I thought that was extremely, extremely powerful along with him saying that the reason why he didn't want to do, um, kind of more con- contemporary of the era, like jazz or funk music or anything like that. It's because it wasn't what the core of the movie was about. It it wasn't, it's not like a historical, a fictionalized historical piece. It's, it's this love story. This, uh, it's tied so deeply to the romance yeah. and, the, and the, the, the relationship. 
Yeah, it, it's all it's all about these two. I mean, it feels something more out of Grecian tragedy than it does, um, you know, this contemporary American uh, story. Uh, but it definitely has this kind of it has like star-crossed lovers kind of Shakespeare tone oh, into the to the film's uh, score, which is something I absolutely adore and deeply appreciate. Yeah, I, I uh, wholeheartedly agree, Alex. I think if Beale Street Could Talk was, uh, oh boy, mm, snubbed, 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 snubbed. Snubbed, uh, absolutely. Uh, yeah, Best Picture nominee. It was uh, definitely worthy of that and uh, snubbed in other categories as, as well. But I am really glad to see uh, Nicholas Bartel's score uh, make it into the nominees because it is one of the more visible and emotional part uh, components to the film yes that really does stick out when you're when you're evaluating and looking back that and the cinematography i think are the two things I and mean, of course the performances yeah uh, all those are really major components that when i think back about the film that's those are the things i, I think stick out the most in, in an all-around exceptional film yeah and one thing that i find very uh unique and moving about this this film is that there there are times where um when we discuss film uh, a place like a setting can become a new character. Like depending upon um, if it's New York city, I'll frequently films about New York become New York is an additional character, how it's, you know, mythologized and all that kind of thing. Um, similarly in this film, the score, it almost feels like itself. It's another character because it's prominence, especially in quiet moments. Um, like the lovemaking sequences, those are just really, punctuated by not just the score, but also the sound design. Um, especially you have like the fading out and it just changes to rain because that he lives in this basement apartment and the rain sounds are just perpetual in this place. And it's just, it's so raw. It's so real. It's so, it's so real and intimate. It almost makes you feel uncomfortable because it's just so honest and vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the score feels like, it's almost like your heart is playing that music. Alex, I think vulnerable, that's really the perfect word for this film. I think it is summed up uh, vulnerability through the the score, through the story, uh, a romance, uh, just an honest romance too, uh, looking at the challenges of love, um, especially uh, as a person of color in New York City at the time, uh, and uh, also just the ideas and themes that the film is trying to communicate. I just feel like Barry Jenkins is putting it all out there. Yeah. Uh, putting it all out there for the whole audience to see. And because uh, I think at the end of the day, he's trying to communicate uh, the power of love. It sounds, it sounds so cheesy, but it's so effectively done. The power of love and how love can triumph. Uh, love between a couple or love between people can triumph even the most tragic of circumstances. Yeah. And I, I just adore, I I adore everything about this score and I think that it is masterful. And, um, you know, if, if this film, um, score or black Klansman walk away the winner, I just complete, I'm just, I'd just be happy. That's a great way to, that's kind of a great way to start to wind this down, Alex. Uh, who's, who's, who is your favorite two things? Who's your favorite and who's going to win? Oh, that's hard. Oh, that's really hard. The more I found, the more, invested you are in something the less likely you're going to be right oh of course Um, always with the Oscars that's why I'm so good at like predicting uh Wrestlemania every year is because it's like (laughs) it's like ah yes I I'm less invested in this but but for this I man okay I would say that Bratel I would say that if Beale Street 
edges out the competition for me in terms of my personal favorite for uh, this group of Oscar nominees. Of course, like, of course, Vice, fucking amazing too, but I guess he can't really... Can't really he, double he can't, dip. He can't, he can't win for Vice when Vice isn't nominated. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I know, but I'm just saying, like, you know, I, I wish that Vice were also nominated. Oh, oh agreed. Yeah, no, no, you yeah. can. I think, I believe John Williams has proven that you can, can double dip. Oh, okay. Well, if that's the case, I wish Vice was on, I wish Vice is on the docket too. That would make everything a lot more challenging. Um, but I'd say that, that Beale Street's my favorite of the year, hands down. Now, in terms of front runner, well, okay. Let, I'll chew on that, and I'll ask you what's your favorite of our docket. It's really tough. Uh, I love the vulnerability and the the emotion of a uh, if Beale Street could talk, but I will say, kind of the fury and the passion behind Black Klansman really get, gets me on fire. Yeah. I get fired up every time I hear that score. So um, I'm pretty biased towards Black Klansman this year, though. I, I would love to see if Beale Street could talk could take it. I really do think it's kind of a pretty close race, but I could see Black Plant. Black Panther, Black Klansman, or if Beale Street could talk, taking home the gold. I yeah. think any of those three seems like a likely choice. I'm leaning towards Black Klansman getting the award, but you know how the Academy is. It's kind of tough. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, if, I think if Beale Street could talk, walked away with one award uh, of the yeah. night, I think this would be very well-deserved. Yeah. Uh, that's kind of where I'm, I'm ending up myself. I don't feel like um, uh, Displots... Um, I love dog score is good, but you know, and Mary Poppins is also good. I mean, these are all, it's basically, none of these are, none of these are even like average. These are all exceptional. Yeah. Yeah. It's obviously picking your, your, it's like picking your favorite child. Basically. Yeah. It's not like um, best picture where you're like bemoaning half of the nominees. No, no, these like are all, year, yeah. these are all top performers. <laughs> no, these are all exemplary uh, notes, but I would also really super agree with that sentiment. I feel like, feel like there it's a maybe a tighter race between Beale Street and Black Klansman and I feel like if I was like looking back and trying to put my objective goggles on it probably would go to Black Black Klansman before Beale Street and I'd be totally fine with that um because obviously Terrence uh Blanchard well deserving huge career like yeah absolutely um but in terms of you know personal biases it uh, wasn't quite my my absolute, you know, number one of the year. But I think that, I mean, honestly, I wouldn't, it's cool that like, I'm like, cool, I'm glad all of these are nominated. I wouldn't be absolutely gut-wrenchingly upset if any of them won. Mary Poppins, I'd be like, why? But, you yeah, know, that would be the only, that would be the only the one upset I'd be, that I'd be yeah. like, yeah. Eh. And just I mean, like, it wouldn't okay. be the most offensive upset. I'd just be like, really? Yeah, I'd be like, man, that was a that was a waste. <laughs> It'd be more like, oh, I wasted all of those. But, um, but yeah, I feel like this is a good cohort of amazing uh, best picture nominees. Uh, best picture, <laughs> best score, might as well. Uh, this is an amazing cohort of best score nominees, uh, written by incredible, talented musicians, composers, and scholars. Just absolutely blown away and uh well everyone that is our gonna be our show for this for this february uh thank you for joining us on our oscar special uh remind everyone when you could watch the oscars caleb well alex you can watch the 91st academy awards or aka the oscars on sunday february 24th i believe that the program starts at 7 p.m at central time and of course, you can't forget 
that it'll be uh, red carpeting all four, so it'll be fun. Uh, make sure to throw a party, celebrate movies. It's going to be great. And I think uh, despite all of my qualms and disappointments in this year's uh, presentation and a lot of the nominees, it's still a great time to celebrate movies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because every time you, um, every time you watch the Academy Awards, and especially watching the categories they don't put during the commercial break, um, you're supporting and cherishing the people, the people that aren't ever going to appear on camera that are never going to get like the recognition besides their IMDb page and uh, the credit roll. So, you know, do the thing as always, please rate review, subscribe to the cinematic schematic on iTunes or your favorite pod catching device. Uh, obviously that helps us um, get more listeners. It helps people hear about the show and get more exciting guests on uh, whenever we do our interview series. Um, you can follow and find me at Alex V Brohannon on Instagram and on Twitter, B R O H A N N O N. And where can people find and follow you? Our editor in chief, Caleb masters. Well, uh, before I, I give my plugs, I do want to give a shout out that, uh, if you're a subscriber and you haven't listened to our full Oscars predictions show, where we uh, actually do, what are a, you doing by I, not I, listening I, to that? Right. Take take a look because we, we don't go as in depth on any of the categories as we did on soundtrack for film scores today. But we do, uh, we're, we're joined by a, a really great, uh, a group of panelists, including LaRon Chapman, Chelsea Ratterman, and Adam Chitwood, all talking about our picks for this year's Oscars. It's a great time. It's a long show, but I think we cover a lot of ground and have a great time doing it. So uh, make sure to, so if you are if you are subscribed, make sure to go back and listen to that episode. If you are not subscribed, well, as Alex said, go ahead and subscribe, or you can just head and listen to that podcast over on the cinematropolis.com. Uh, you can now, of course, you can find me tweeting about all of the Oscar things, especially as we lead up to the ceremony, uh, at on Twitter, at Talk. That's letter C, Masters Talk. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. And to close out our show, Caleb, I'm going to be self-indulgent because that's what the Academy Awards is all about. So I'm going to pick uh, a film that was not nominated for um, our best original score this year. And that's going to be, uh, we're going to pick a selection from Vice composed by yes. Nicholas Bertel. So we're going to be hearing uh, Vice's main title orchestral suite at the very end of our show today. And so this has been Soundtrack and we'll track again with you next time. <laughs>